Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Dr. James McCleary, who I have wanted to interview for quite some time. Now, this conversation comes from the Wisdom of Elders series that I did a few months ago, and in this conversation, we talk about a number of things, but first, let me tell you a little bit about James and why I wanted to have him on the show. So, Dr. McCleary has done some incredible work. Uh, he started a program that goes into prison systems and works to rehabilitate the men that are within that prison system. And essentially, he and his sons ended up doing a documentary a few years ago called The Work. And it shows the program in, in real time. They, they bring in regular men from the community to come in and do uh, to do sort of group work or group therapeutic work with the men that are incarcerated. And it's incredibly, incredibly powerful documentary. So if you haven't done men's work and you've ever wondered what it actually looks like real time, uh, the work is a great documentary to check out. I think you can find it on uh, Apple and uh, a few other streaming platforms like Amazon, I believe. But Dr. McCleary has a huge amount of experience in working with men from various backgrounds and various upbringings and ethnicities and religious backgrounds and has been doing this work for decades upon decades upon decades. And so we go in depth and talk about what is what is at the core of men's work? What happens when we strip elders and mentors out of societies and cultures and the impact that that has had on the various cultures and communities within North America and the impacts of not having those roles established within our communities. We talk about being able to reestablish some of those pieces. Uh, we talk about bridging the gap as men being able to develop more depth-oriented male friendships and a variety of other pieces that will allow you as a man to work towards being a better husband, better father, a better leader, someone who is contributing, feels fulfilled, and is able to not only validate himself, but add value to the world around you. So this is a very potent conversation that I very much enjoyed. I hope that you check out Dr. McCleary's work. And without any further delay, please welcome Dr. James McCleary. Yeah. So James, how how are you doing today? And, uh, and where are you based? I am based in San Rafael, California. Moved here uh, about four years ago. My sons had been begging me to come out for the last 20 to 25 years. And they live in uh, Southern California. And, you know, the weather's great, but I just didn't have an affinity for it. And San Rafael is in Northern California. So it's mm -hmm. just across, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm -hmm. And I just like, the weather's great. It's not as hot as uh, Southern California, uh, but the people have this kind of light vibe. And in Marin County, where I live, there's all these, you know, I don't even know what it, what you call them, Gen X, millennials, and doing a lot of very cool things in the world. So I'm enjoying the, the weather as well as the interaction with people. Yeah, wonderful. Wonderful. I, I think I've been through that area. I think I... I actually did a trip one time with a friend of mine in a, in a camper van, and we started basically at the very bottom of California and over the course of about 16 days, drove our way up along the West Coast, along the very, uh, the highway on the West Coast. I don't remember what, what number it is, but incredible. Specific, specific highway and then, you know, the 101. Right. Yes, that, that's yeah. it. And we kind of, we kind of surfed our way up along the coast of California and Oregon. It was, it was wonderful. Uh, James, I just want to give you a chance to maybe say a little bit more, first and foremost, about the work that you do and, and perhaps what got you into that work in the first place. Well, thank you uh, kind of for having me. I appreciate being here and all the listeners. Uh, thank you for, for coming on. It started way back when, uh, when I was a youngster, even in my house, I was the mediator and negotiator between my older brother and my father because he was a, a, a bit wild and uh, always getting into it. My oldest son, I guess, butts head with the father. And I was always in between that. And it carried over into the uh, street um, where I was known as when I was younger. And I'm talking seven, eight years old. 
people used to call me friend of the friendless because anyone who was getting picked on or, or needed an advocate in the neighborhood, I was right there. Hmm. <laughs> and, you know, as I grew into that role, unbeknownst to me, I became uh, what was known as a fixer. So uh, I used to do things in the neighborhood to make things happen and introductions and and it even spilled over into my, my teen years and early 20s. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And, you know, I grew up, I was born in 1948. And so the, the United States is pretty segregated at that time. So uh, there were two neighborhoods in Chicago where uh, black people lived. And my, my aunt lived in one of those neighborhoods, the west side of Chicago. And my father lived in the south side of Chicago in the other neighborhood. And those neighborhoods were only about 10 blocks by 15 blocks, basically. So everyone lived in that neighborhood. Uh, Cassius Clay lived in the neighborhood. Elijah Muhammad, Mahalia Jackson. I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, the, the great blues singers who came from Chicago, they lived in, in the neighborhood. So... It was really a communal thing for me to understand that community was about everyone living there mm. and all of the talent being in, in one pool. And there was a sharing of talent because really no one had a, a whole lot of money. <laughs> and so that those are kind of my roots. I was caught up in the underground economy, if you will, because that was a source of a viable career alternative. Uh, my father was involved in it. My uncles were involved in it. And I was involved in it. And I was what you, you'd call a merchant, basically. So I was not a gangbanger. I was a merchant, although I knew everybody. And so I matriculated through the neighborhood selling whatever the goods were at the time. And then uh, I always became, I was intrigued by how people hurt one another. It hurt me to see someone hurt. And I suppose that's why I became friend of the friendless and the fixer and negotiator, so forth and so on, because I just couldn't understand the cruelty that existed. And, you know, I, I later got some understanding of it, obviously, both experientially and academically. I'm a clinical psychologist, one of my traits, and I uh, I specialized in forensics, which had anything to do with the legal system. So I worked a lot in mental health institutions where the homeless were, or prison hospitals, uh, or community hospitals. And so I saw what the root causes of some of the hurt, wounding, and trauma that turned into behavior that was cruelty. And so that's kind of my roots there. Mm. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I'm curious, you know, my first thought as I was listening to you talk about your upbringing in the community that you grew up in was to immediately want to ask, you know, what did that, what did elderhood sort of look like within the community that you grew up in? Was it, was it a, an active part? Was it something that you felt was missing? I'm, I'm curious to get your sense on that. No, at, at, at the time that I grew up, eldership was alive and well. And so the older men, they really called the shots in the main vote, no matter what profession they were in, politician, police, uh, medical, or gangsterism. And uh, there was a respect for that. And even, uh, not even, but the women actually, uh, the traditional uh, African, as well as Native history, is that the women actually are the, the council selecting who goes, what man gets to be the chief and, and run the show, basically. And that was pretty much the case in the neighborhood at the time. Remember, we're talking about 40s and 50s, right? And and uh, 60s, which it began to taper off then, and there's a reason, I think, for that. And so any adult in the neighborhood could immediately stop something that was happening that shouldn't be happening. And so there was a, a great deal of respect. I mean, you'd walk down the neighborhood and there were uh, folks sitting on the porch. And if we were talking loud, somehow we, 
we automatically lowered our voice as we passed the, the aunties and the grandmothers on the porch. And so there was a sense of eldership, and I was fascinated by it. I remember lots of times I'd go by uh, my friend's house, and we, we were getting ready to go out somewhere. And I was holding up the show because I'd be sitting with their grandmother or grandfather hearing stories. Mm-hmm. And they'd go, Mac, let's go. That was that was the my street name, Mac. We got to go. And I said, yeah, just a minute, just a minute. <laughs> so I've always been intrigued by, by eldership and the rich uh, uh, metaphors and, and stories that could guide one's life. Yeah. It- Thank you. I, I appreciate that because it, and maybe you can correct any inaccuracies in this, but it almost sounds like the elders in your community were responsible for creating a, a kind of order through respect that, that there was a, that there was a tenant, a value that was pervasive within the, within the culture. You know, I'm sure that there was, you know, trials and hardships. You're, you know, you're talking about the role that you played within the community at that time. And yet there's, uh, there's still that role. And so I'm curious, you said uh, you sort of alluded to this shift in the 60s, um, which I would love for you to maybe speak a little bit more about. Um, it was more towards the late 60s and into the 70s. There was a flood of drugs that came into the neighborhood, especially um, cocaine, which was converted to you know, crack and rock and because... Yeah, I, I guess everybody really knows the story. You can look at some of these programs like Snowflake, and you can see that the influx was was through government agencies who were funding their covert operations. But the brothers couldn't sell cocaine. <laughs> it was too expensive. And so uh, they ingeniously found a way to cook it down to rocks. And a rock you could get for dirt cheap. And so when that happened, people became addictive because they were addictive drugs and it became more maniacal, the, 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 the protection of territory and, and the gaining of just obscene amounts of money by different people. So it became dangerous and strayed away from some of the values. And, you know, I think the original values I have been involved with autodidactic learning with elders in South America for many years, as well as in South Africa, as well as on the reservations. And the notion of eldership really was carried over psychologically and and collective unconscious-wise into the eldership of the neighborhood at the time. And so there was a respect for this wisdom that I saw deep in in the Amazon or up in the Andes or in the African bush or on the reservations. And so that the drug piece really just kind of interrupted that human flow between uh, there's some things I'd like to take you into my wing and show you uh, versus there were no elders. Right? Mm. Parents were going to jail and becoming addictive. Grandparents. Right now, we, we, we work with uh, youngsters, as you probably know, in juvenile detention centers. And their grandmothers and grandfathers have been in, in prison and have been drug addicts, let alone their, their parents. And so there's been this gap between everything that you might have got from zero to 18 year old, like psychology. I don't want to get clinical, but it's called a the good enough environment where the caregivers let you stretch into, you know, the tantrum police, not too far. And then they also encourage and let you stretch into whatever your, uh, you know, I call it medicine, but your gift or talent is in the world. And that way at a very young age, you got to get these boundaries between how far you can go off and how far you can go. And then these answers aren't going to school. (laughs) So, they don't get that socialization piece that, you know, used to uh, come from that eight hours or so that uh, you're in school every day, right? And at the same time, the culture started to break apart. And so when you can't trust the minister, the priest, uh, the president, the, the, the person who manages your uh, 
you know, retirement account. If you can't trust anybody who you would have placed some trust into because they're violating that trust, there becomes this break in not authority or hierarchy, but someone who's uh, done something before you to extent that they have experience. And so that experience, you know, just became shadowy at that point. So there was no trust. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different avenues that we could go with what you're saying, but I think I would love to maybe just take this opportunity to inquire a little bit deeper into what your version of a definition or, or definition of what an elder is and the the role that they play within culture and society and why they are so imperative. Because I hear you sort of talking about the different parts that they can play, but I just maybe like to address it directly. You know, I've never really thought of a definition, but I, I'll stumble around in it. And, you know, this is my definition, and I don't think it's written in stone anywhere. But right. <laughs> so my experience with elders is that they would see you. They would see the, the parts about you were um, helpful to you and others. And they'd see the parts in you where you might use your brilliance to take advantage. And somehow they could help you to see it as well. So you weren't in, unconscious and running amok and taking advantage of folks. So I think it's kind of the wisdom of the many years that someone's been alive. Hmm. and. Uh, trying in some way to uh, support younger people as they move along the chain of self-discovery. And so I've had some really good mentors in my life who saw the gifts in me and, and said, what do you want to do with that? They didn't tell me what to do, but they, they probed to see if I had any inkling or idea where I might take my life. And they just kind of gently moved me towards those things. Hmm. And, and so I certainly wouldn't be sitting here today doing what I do if I didn't have this kind of coaching, role modeling, and mentoring that helped me to discover what my gifts were and, and how I might use them and how I might learn about them. I just wouldn't be sitting here. I remember at, at, uh, I caught a couple of felonies in my life and my wife at the time she wasn't my wife, but we were, you know, living together. And I was 23. And she said, it's either the life or it's me. And you don't get a chance to decide. I want to know right now. So I decided that I wanted what she could bring me because I considered her an elder. She had a, this innate wisdom hmm. about how to understand things and then how to go about articulating or behaving in that understanding. Hmm. So I hope I kind of hit some of those points. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, I feel like the elders that I've been blessed to have enter into my life mysteriously and the, the ones that I've sought out kind of act like the, the bumpers in the bowling alley. You know, when I was about to veer off into the gutter in a real bad way, they sort of either appeared out of nowhere or I had... I had the fortune of of having some common sense to go and to go and ask before shit got really bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so exactly. Yeah. And so what maybe maybe tell me a little bit about what's the you know you've you've worked with so many individuals and you have such a breadth of experience and you've put together this program or programs to to work with men. I'm hoping that you can speak a little bit to the the impact on us as men when that eldership, when that elderhood isn't present in our lives. What do you, what do you see men missing out on and, and what does it leave behind? Uh, that's a great question. hope I can answer it. And I just want to say, I don't know that I've come up with anything on my own. I've always, it's always been a collaborative uh, process with mm. me. And even the prison program in Folsom it, that was the dream child of someone who was locked up for life. And he knew another guy who was teaching poetry uh, and another uh, man who they were pen pals. And they talked to him about rites of passage and the initiatory spirit of uh, the call. Where's the itch for what I know I should be doing? There's an itch. And 
who would know? I mean, very, very rare that someone says, oh, I want to be an astronaut. And then, you know, 30 years later, they are, <laughs> right? Uh, we don't know how to, how to identify what we might be good at. And if we do identify it, like, well, what do I do with it? So uh, what he saw from these two men was that there was a way to bring the initiatory experience inside of prison besides the initiatory experience that was already there. Mm -hmm. And with the hopes that men who were living a life of uh, service could be role models and in that role model place, create those the, the bumpers that you described in the bowling alley. Uh, this is something that impacts me. Are you aware that your behavior and what you just did had an impact on me and it looks like this? Because, you know, the tape in our head, the voice in my head can trick me into all kinds of weirdness and craziness. And if that's the only voice that's rolling, I'm going to be in big trouble sometimes. So I need to have a, another voice that's coming uh, at me and providing me with some kind of disposable information and, and information I, I can relate to. And that's exactly what happened. This guy, Rob Alvey and, and uh, Don Morrison, they sought me out and asked me if we can get into prison, would you come? Because he knew I had a lot of experience in the initiatory process and, and all the conceptualization and the operationalization around how you, you dispense it. So I did. I didn't think it was going to happen. I mean, Folsom Prison was a pretty dangerous place. The warden at the time said, look, you can go next door to Old Folsom. Two prisons are right next door to each other, Old Folsom and New Folsom. And it's a medium security. And if you don't mess with my reputation and you don't get killed, then you can come into New Folsom, which is a maximum security prison and a kick-out prison for the supermax. So the type crime bosses come to that, that B yard, and if they can make it in general population, then, you know, they can live out their life in general population instead of 23-hour lockdown every day. And so we did, and it worked. These men, and I find men, is, and we do this with, with women as well now, Everyone is hungry to sit in the community and uh, speak towards their truth. Mm. What's bothering them, what they feel they're good at, the yearning to want to do something and don't know how. Everyone, I find, wants to, to speak about that in a community. It's kind of hard to have dialogue with yourself. Like I said before, if I just stick with the dialogue of myself, I'm going to be a wreck, Right. And it also helps with, you know, some of the principles of awareness. I mean, along the path of knowledge, at, at least for my teachers and the indigenous teachers, the first milestone is awareness. If you don't know what you don't know, you can't really be that effective. <laughs> and once you do know what you didn't know, then you can move into re the responsibility of what you do know. And then you have to act on it. And once you begin acting on it, if that behavior has an untoward consequences or impact on yourself or others, there needs to be some accountability around it, right? And once all of that happens, now there's sort of an unfeathered or clear pathway to how you can be of service in the world, which I think everybody would like to do. Hmm, I agree. I agree entirely and, and wholeheartedly with that. And I think what I hear you say is that in some ways, when we extract or remove elders from a community, we remove the initiatory process in some way, that it hinders our ability to initiate the younger generation. Is that is that correct? Yes. Can you speak a little bit more about the notion of initiation and, and what you've learned? Because it, it seems like you've had these opportunities to go and see initiatory processes in different environments all over the world, and then to bring this initiation to a, a very sort of needed environment, I would imagine. But can you just speak to what initiation is and its function? Because I think in, in our modern culture, uh, it's a foreign concept, I think, for a lot of people. Like they may know what initiation is and the definition of it and kind of have obscure exa examples of it, but they might not know what the function of it actually is and the purpose that it serves. 
And so I'm hoping that you can maybe just describe a little bit of what you've seen initiation being and, and, the, and its importance. So you, know, you can get a kind of a textbook. Anyone who wants to get a textbook understanding of initiation can read anything by Joseph Campbell, right? But from my lived experience in it, uh, these communities are smaller. And I'm talking about villages in the jungle or small communities in the bush or even on the res reservation. And so what one person does, there is an impact on everybody else. And what one person doesn't provide also has an impact on everybody else. So it's sort of a shared experience. We move along together and not individually. Hmm. And so there is this notion of, and I don't want to get too, too crazy here, but they usually have their elders are, they call them, you know, shamans uh, in Africa, Singomas, Brujas, Brujos, and the Indian tradition, indigenous tradition. And these are elders who have some kind of really charismatic qualities about them, especially it's magical, basically, because they're not bound by the normal rules of a, a Western culture or by science. And so it's kind of amazing to see, you know, them fish or go out on a hunt where they're singing songs. And it appeared to me that the songs were attracting the game. And there was this respect for taking the game's life. And the game knew the fish or the, the monkey or uh, the armadillo or whatever there was this connection that we are all, I'm going to give up my life to, so that there is life, so that there's this chain of events of life. <laughs> and so the initiatory process was, you know, survival, basically. And you had to know what you were good at and how you could contribute. And that started at a pretty early age where the elders would come and, and at special times in the year, come and get the youngsters. Uh, women for the young women and men for the young boys and separate them from the village and take them out somewhere where they were unfamiliar and strip them of all of the things that kept them familiar. So in a modern initiatory experience, you know, you couldn't walk in the building without giving up your car keys and cell phone and you know, cigarettes and everything else. So you went in naked, so to speak. Mm. And uh, within that nakedness, the first was a call. So you began to get a sense in this ritualistic uh, setup and container that, well, this is special. And there's something about me that I'm supposed to come up with to get. So that's the call. The knowing that there's some part that one needs to play. And then the stripping part is the descent. Uh, all the things that keep you familiar with yourself. Uh, you know, in a modern world, the color blue is how you might identify yourself. Or if you smoke camel cigarettes or you drive a, a convertible, these are all identity pieces that says, this is who I am. But that's not who you are. And so you get stripped of all those things. So that you're just left with discovery, right? Self-discovery unfolding. And that leads you to the ordeal. And then in the indigenous uh, uh, culture, you have to bring back a, a, a claw or the skin of the anaconda or a tooth. But you have to, you have to take care of that, that animal first. And that's where you learn what kind of grit you have. Where's your, your chutzpah? And then that's the ordeal because you're, you're grappling with the demons that normally interfere with you seeing how divine and brilliant you are, basically. And uh, once that ordeal happens, the ascent begins to happen, and that's where the vision quest comes. And so you, you get to be off by yourself, and the trajectory of being taken out of a familiar environment, being stripped of everything that you used as a kind of a crutch to say this is me, the ordeal of having to come up with how you 
you struggled with making sure that you got to save your life in some way. And that leaves you in this, this serene place of uh, nothingness, where now the somethingness of who you are can start to come in, the real somethingness. And then you, that's where your mission and purpose becomes clear. Hmm. Thank you for all of that, because I think you, you did a beautiful job of laying it out. And it's, it's interesting. I could hear the words of Terrence McKenna. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but I could hear him talking about the, the shaman and how the shaman is this archetype that almost rides the line between reality and the dream realm, you know, between the conscious and the unconscious. And that in some capacity, the, the shaman's role is to help individuals with making sense of, or not even making sense of, but in coming into contact with that unconsciousness that resides within all of us and finding some level of coherence with that, with that unconscious aspect of us, the collective, et cetera, the universe. And so, yeah, beautiful. And, and then I'm curious, you, you talked about um, some sort of indigenous examples of going off in the wild. And I'm, I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit more about what that initiatory process looks like within the work that you do with men. Like how, what, how do you start to lead them into coming into the call or the stripping down or um, the ordeal? Like, you know, they're, they're obviously not going to go and face a, a lion or anything like that, or be out in, in the wilderness for five days alone with, with nothing. So how does one create that initiatory experience for, for men? Mm. Maybe a big question, I know. But. Yeah, <laughs> no, that, that's a great question. And anyone who's seen the, the, the film, you get parts of what that is, but you don't see it continuously from start to bottom. So essentially, anyone who comes into that room has heard the call. Maybe hmm. they're looked at one of their cellmate and said, there's something different about you. Something about that appeals to me. I got an itch inside. Uh, I'd like to know about it. Right. Hmm. So that's the call. And even the, the men from the outside, they come to us and we bet them because hmm. we don't want any looky lose in their voyeurs. It's too dangerous anyway for someone to come in as a spectator. And so they've heard the call. Something about them wants that experience. And a lot of people don't know what they want or why they've been called. And it's really not important. The important part is that you answer the call. And so it, it's steeped in ritual. Uh, you might have heard, remember the chant that happens hmm. in the beginning. And that is a way to take that. There were 85, 88 people in there, that chapel. That is a way to vibrationally pull everyone into the same wavelength or frequency. Sound does that. And there's a lot of scientific um, data that supports, because they looked at preachers, and preachers speak in a certain cadence, and it's mesmerizing and hypnotizing, and it actually does sync up with some of the wavelengthing in your brain. Hmm. And it filters out some of the discordant uh, wavelengths so that everybody's on the same page. So we use a lot of ritual. Um, the, the initiates, if you will, who've never been through training, they are put off to the side. When they come in, they come in to singing and chanting. I do a lot of singing. Aaron Ortega, who uh, comes from a Hawaiian background, he does a lot of singing and calling and chanting back and forth. They, they walk through sort of a gauntlet, if you will, of men and welcome into the circle, right? Mm. So steeped in ritual. And much like some of the empty ritual that, that happens, say, at a baseball game where everybody stands up, puts their hand over their heart and sings the national anthem, right? I'm sure there are times even now where there's a resonance that happens when everybody is into it, right? Mm. And so now everybody is. The players and the, the spectators are all in sync, and it's the same thing. So that's the ritual setup to bring people in. So that's, that takes care of the call and starts on the descent. Now everybody is focused and attentive. Something's going to happen. <laughs> we don't know what. 
Yeah. Something's going to happen. And the process allows people to talk to one another. You saw some of the processes, right? Who betrayed you? Who have you betrayed? Right? And when you've been set up, to be honest, you know, the real, real truth comes up mm. of how you betrayed or how you were betrayed. And that allows you at a very visceral and real conscious way to understand the impact of your behavior as well as the impact of other people's behavior when it's in shadow mm. and not good, right? And at that point, people keep descending further and further into their own truth. And there are always seminal or original events that may have caused that. Like you may have uh, seen some of, you know, one guy, you know, his father, she shamed him. He wasn't uh, uh, a teacher to him. And at a very young age, if this is a person you really care about, and this is the man next to God who doesn't care about you or is shaming you or even hurting you, right? You get a warped sense of, you know, what your own self-worth and self-esteem is. And so that seminal original event, everybody comes up with their own and they get to walk through it. Hmm. And then they get to reclaim what may have been taken away from them, their dignity, uh, you know, in some cases, their chastity, they get to take that reclaimer. And that's kind of the ordeal. And we call that carpet work, right? And once that happens, then they can sit and we go, okay, what, what, what did you do to reclaim that? What strengths did you come up with to reclaim that? Well, that's your medicine. That's what you're good at. And so now how can you go out in the world and purposely be of service with that gift? Because everybody's been randomly performing their gifts, hmm. but consistently is really what gives people kind of a coherence and a sense of uh, groundedness and congruence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank, thank you for all of that. It's such a beautiful articulation of the process and you know, the initiatory experiences that I've gone through, I remember you're talking about at the very end there, coming into relationship with your gifts, right? With your strengths and what you needed to go through that initiatory experience. And I remember one specific instance of something that I went through where I really realized how adaptive to change I am, like just in a, just in a, in a, wild way. You know, I grew up between two completely different family systems. My parents got divorced when I was three. They got remarried. They both had a daughter. They both had a son and their family systems looked, I looked identical, but the players between like my mom and my stepmom were totally opposite. You know, they're like totally different characters. My dad and my stepdad, totally different characters. And so here I was bouncing back and forth between the two witnessing all of these differences between these people. I, I never knew what to make of that. Of course, I had a wound around belonging and there was a whole bunch of other stuff, but I remember going through one specific experience where I came out of it with this sort of uh, connection to a realization of how well I had been gifted with, with change to be able to adapt to that change. And I had been sort of using that strength in a unhealthy uninformed way where I was the chameleon. I could fit into any situation. I could get out of any situation. And so I'd been using that gift in a way to keep me hidden, you know, to keep me small, to keep me hidden from the world and the people that I loved. And it was such a revealing uh, experience. And so, I don't know, something about what you just said there, it just, it just pulled, pulled that forward. I was hoping that you can maybe say a little bit more about the ordeal and the confrontation and maybe the, the need, or I don't know if you would use the word confrontation, but do you feel, maybe I'll ask you that, do you feel that confrontation is necessary in initiation experiences? Most definitely. And so before I forget it, because I am an elder and I don't want to have elder <laughs> moments, when you talked about your wound of not knowing whether you belong. The, the wound gets the flip side of the gift. So here you are bringing people together to belong in podcasts, right? So 
it's always the flip side of whatever the wound is, which I think is is pretty potent and obvious, but we don't know that. Oh yeah, we can't um, see it when we're when we're in the when we're when we're caught in the trap of the shadow and the wound and the pain and yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there is I like to uh and I have a a, a pretty solid academic uh foundation. Mm-hmm. Right. I was never uh, a brilliant student. You know, I was always like a C student, but I have a, I have a law degree and I've got a master's in clinical systems and I've got a PhD in uh, uh, clinical psychology. I was a teacher. And so what I do know from the Western scientific approach is that without a threat, there, the greater the threat, the greater the impetus to respond to the threat, right? Mm. So it's fight, flight, or freeze. And a lot of times, especially when there's a threat in the room, and, you know, our hindbrain just doesn't really distinguish between a lion being in the room or somebody who, you know, you don't get along with coming into the room, right? Mm. The brain automatically starts dumping hormones that create a fight or flight a response physically and you don't ask for that to happen you don't think for that to happen it happens automatically and so when that happens there's something that you need to do with it now in most of our lives you know it's been pretty inappropriate to use a response you know that's what tensions are right that's what talking back to the teacher is there's a lot of pushback on that kind of, of, of expression right mm. You don't talk unless you talk to, you certainly don't raise your voice to me, and I don't want to hear it. You know, so you don't even get to explain what was going on with you. You just got to go with whatever the biggest person in the room is saying to do, and it becomes habitual. And that habituation robs you of your self-motivation in a lot of things, right? Mm. And so without that threat, you wouldn't get up out of your chair, right? And so uh, the autonomic response helps with your body being ready for it. It also dumps different other hormones in your brain that raises your ability to withstand risk, as well as put you in a spot where you can withstand the risk longer, right? So if you were out hunting a lion, those hormones would get would start pumping so that you could keep hunting the lion and not run away or hide, right? Because you got to get get the lion to eat. So that's what happens in the modern process. If that wasn't there, people would go, I don't, this is not me, I'm leaving. You know, how dare you, you know, ask me to give up my, my cell phone? But there's something about the threat when you look in the eyes, especially with men who are in prison, right? I mean... Don't you think it's amazing that Eldra, who at the time of that film had no idea it was going to be released, and all the other men, Rick, Aaron, I mean, I could many, I could go down the line. These men got released with 230 years, double life, all of that, because they could viscerally change their way of being so that it was noticeable to, to the poor board over time to get released, right? And so without the threat, there's no juice to act or to stay long enough to get the benefits of it. Mm. And so we pose threats to the ego, Mm. right? And the ego is trying to protect itself, but there's nowhere to go because we take away all avenues of of fleeing. Can you you say more? Can you say more about that? Because I think I can almost hear the the people asking like well how how do you threaten the ego what does that what does that look like that that form of confrontation well it's it, it's in the descent process it gets groomed because you get an ally you know you get two allies and so uh, anyone who goes as an initiate into the process gets two people who are their allies and they share deeply enough so that when the person wants to leave, that person looks at them, they, they say to them, is this something you do in your life, is leave, 
when it gets mm-hmm. too deep, right? That's a threat, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and, and the person knows that is their MO. Mm. And they know they don't like that MO. And they know they've shared that with this person who they've created this bond with. So they're caught in the catch-22. They'd <laughs> like to leave, but they can't. Right. right? And so that is, is basically the threat. It's not, I'm going to whoop your ass if you leave. That's not the way the threat comes. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, good. Good. Okay. Well, I think that, I think that covers some of the initiation and the role of elderhood. I'd love to just talk a little bit more specifically about, you know, men and masculine culture within our time and kind of get your sense as to what are some of the obstacles or what are some of the confrontations that you feel that men are being called to in our, in our current time? Oh, lots of that. I mean, I'll just take I'll take the Me Too thing, right? The, the Me Too movement. I have been steeped, and I, and I think a lot of men have, even younger men to some degree, steeped in this unconscious sense that there's a greater privilege being a man than there is being a female. And so the privilege means that my access should be more than your access. And we could look at employment statistics, pay statistic, payroll statistics. We could look at any statistic you want, and you can see where that hierarchy exists. There has never been a woman president in this country. What George Washington? How many hundreds of years is that? And never been a woman president. Why is that? I I just believe, and this is my thinking that. Our culture sets up standards, values, mores, and beliefs that are quite limited. And they've been skewed towards whatever the notion was to skew them to early on. So, you know, in, in the religious world, men were the emissaries of God. In, in the family, they're, they're the breadwinners, they're the law. At one point in this there was a, 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 a change in this somewhere around 1970. If a man wanted to commit his wife, he could just pick up the phone. She's hysterical. And really, the hysteria might be just the woman just trying to hold a man accountable, mm. basically. We've been habituated in very limited belief uh, perception boxes, if you will. And so masculinity has been thrown in the perception box. And in the, 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 the hood, where the economy, opportunities for economies got stripped, vocational, educational aspirations just were non-existent, right? And we talked a little bit about that with the, the drug infiltration. The masculinity was not about what you were, but what you could control. Mm. And this control coupled with the economics of the drug trade and the limitation of just so many uh, people get admitted to medical school or get a job or whatever. The competition is fierce. And the only way that we've been taught to deal with competition is to eliminate the competition. And that creates a sense of superiority and privilege. Mm. And so I think that is a way that we've been duped into, you know, this, this kind of hierarchy of who gets it and who don't get it. Right. So there's a confrontation or uh, a coming to terms with that reality. That's what you're saying. Yes. In any professional school I ever was in the first day of orientation, the uh, dean would say, look to the left and look to the right. One of those people are going to be here in graduation. Well, why did you admit them in the first place if you're trying to, uh, uh, you know, create a system that weeds them out? That's crazy. Right. <laughs> Do the vetting up front. Yeah. What, what would you say, you know, you, you talked about and sort of touched on masculinity there. And what would you say are some of the core tenets or attributes that we as men could be cultivating? Like, how do we begin to sharpen one another? How do we begin to hold one another accountable and challenge one another in an effective manner? Because I feel like 
I, I agree with what you're saying. And it also seems like to confront that is to meet hostility or to be evoked to be hostile in some capacity. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about like what, from, what from, from those who have control, from those who have, have uh, said that their masculinity, their maleness, their manhood is predicated on what they can control. Cause I, I, I agree. Yeah. I think that, I think that one of the major issues that we face as men is that we have mislabeled power as control. We think that if we're in control of something, if we've, if we're in white knuckling the shit out of something, then we are in power, which is such a false illusion. Like when I've needed the most control in my life is, is almost always when I feel the most out of control, almost always when I feel the least powerful within myself. So I know I've sort of given you a ton there. I feel like you might be used to, you might be used to that though, in some of these conversations. So I'll, I'll let you either pick up the pieces with that and, and say what you will or, or clarify if you need. Yeah, there's, there's been this, uh, term used toxic masculinity, which speaks, you know, really towards what you you just described is that there's been a mislabeling of what power is and, and what control is. And they seem to be synonymous hmm. and by any means necessary, basically, because that was, that's the message, you know, uh, many men have been got. And so. Part of my professional life is as well is uh, solution strategy in the, in corporations, and, and diversity, equity, inclusion has been a hot piece ever since the George Floyd piece. It was a hot piece before, but they called it multiculturalism, right? And and that that was just kind of a politically correct way to download awareness information, right? Whereas now there's a sense of getting underneath these things. And so what do I do? What technique would I use if I'm sitting in the presence of a man who says something unconsciously that would have been the people in the room? Well, I just simply go, ouch. Hmm. And that person looks at me. Right away, their attention is to me, and they go, excuse me? And I said, ouch. Here's the impact of what you said had on me. I don't know what it had on anybody else, but this is what it had on me. Mm. And listen, I, you know, I'm a, a pacifist. I don't know really what the definition of that is, because <laughs> I remember, <laughs> remember if I will slap you, okay? If, if that's, if that's what, what's needed, you will get slapped. <laughs> And, and and so I can remember I was drafted three times during the Vietnam War, and I actually wanted to go until my my friends were coming back mentally and physically maimed, right, and disabled. And then I said, "Whoa, <laughs> what is happening?" I've been going over there for this, and then I began to educate myself about the whole thing. And then I saw, "Well, this is this is not for me." But I was drafted three times, and I chose not to go. And the first time I went. I went before uh, the board, and you know, I brought the parish priest so he could attest to my gentleness. But they had my police record, and mm. so they, you know, they were like, "Well, you ain't like a pacifist to me." And I said, "Well, there's a difference here, okay?" And the difference is, whenever I acted out through this police record, it, it was confrontation that I couldn't avoid. Mm. This is something I can't avoid, and I don't even understand why we're why we're over there. But, you know, they quickly labeled me, uh, sent me another draft notice. And so I am not looking to hurt or overpower anyone. And when I do that, I've got enough conscious males around me who go, oh, oops, ouch, what was that? And then I can have a moment to think, oh, how did I say that uh, in this group, right? I don't know who's sitting here. I don't know how this, this statement or, or the way I'm presenting something may offend them, right? And I can recognize that this is coming out of some old tapes that I grew up with. Mm. And these old tapes don't apply to people nowadays. So mm. I, I get it. And I, I bring that awareness to the group when I can. I, I uh, apologize and ask for makeup, basically. So there's, there's a way 
that you can be called to account. There's a way that you can make up for it too, because I'm sorry just doesn't get it. There needs to be some kind of conscious makeup. So people recognize that you want to get back in uh, integrity with them. Even if it's, you know, I'm going to bring everybody their water bottles at lunchtime, right? It's just a way to say, I recognize what I did. This behavior shows you that I can uh, be accountable to my word. And I'm going to be conscious about how I speak now. And now you know it through my actions, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. So there are techniques that you can do. And we got to hold each other accountable, right? I'm not going to let anybody overpower me, right? And, and it's, it's non-righteous or they're using, you know, a, a toxic method to speak over me or, you know, I've got a, a, a really good one when men in power get miffed that I may have caused attention to something. And uh, they say, can I ask you a question? And I go, you just did. And then they have this strange look on their face and they go, oh, well, may I ask you another question? And I said, you just did. And that is a way to let them know that we're going to have an honest conversation and we're not having a conversation at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. I I might have to, I might have to adopt, adopt that one. I, I, I like that. I remember working in retail and it's a very interesting environment. I worked for Apple and you, you kind of get all sorts of people in there. And I remember some of the most challenging individuals to navigate were usually the, this very entitled, sometimes men, but sometimes women, but I, I seem to get a lot of the guys that would come in really hot, you know, really steamed and upset. And the sense was, I'm going to get my way and, and my way is the right way. And I'm going to overpower you. And it was such a, a lesson in staying grounded in the face of someone that is aggressive, that maybe is resorting to attacking character and not allowing myself to be, as you're saying, overpowered. And so it was such a such an interesting experiment in just being able to navigate those waters. Yeah. So a- anything, just before we do that, anything else that you want to add in to sort of close any of the loops on initiation or masculinity that we were talking about? Yeah, I, I would just say that uh, uh, the the whole process of initiation is becoming aware. So even in the smaller sense of what we were just talking about, male toxicity, uh, masculine uh, toxic behavior, it is you know it's calling awareness to that in, in a way that the other person gets it, and and it doesn't have to be confrontational. It can just be you know, excuse me ouch, what you said had an impact on me. Uh, and I, I'd rather you not, you know, use that phrase or whatever in within our conversation, right? Or look them in the eye and let them know hmm. that if they do it again, somebody's going to get a slap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate that. Cause I think, I think one of the challenges that some men have around this notion of like correcting one another, like within our, uh, we have a program called the Alliance and there's hundreds of men from around everywhere within that space. And we talk about calling one another forward, calling another man forward. Uh, and that's the, some of the language that we use around it, but it's a really effective tool because I think that oftentimes in regular culture, like I think about the environment that I grew up in, in Northern Alberta in Canada, which is sort of like the Texas of Canada. Um, there's no holding each other accountable to being better as men. There is only pointing out and being derogatory towards and harming another man for having a weakness. And I think shifting out of that behavior is, is something that is absolutely critical and being able to still challenge one another and still confront one another and still hold one another accountable. Uh, in in a very direct way, so I, I appreciate what you're saying. So I think that that is incredibly valuable. I appreciate your time and your effort and your energy and your wisdom today, and so much so much gratitude for you taking some time out of your schedule to be with us here today and to come and connect with you. 
any final parting words? Obviously, you know, I would encourage everyone to go and, and watch the work if they haven't already. We'll have links for that that people can check out. But any parting words that you'd like to leave people with? Get away. Get woke. However you stumble on getting woke, the more woke you are, the safer you are to me. And the more support you are to, to me and everyone else. Hmm. So do your work. Yeah. 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 Do the work. That's good. (laughs) All right, James, thank you so much for your time today. And that's it for right now. So James, thank you so much, my friend. Be well. Appreciate it. Thank everyone else. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.